0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today as we explore all things parenting with myself, Di Bowens, and our inspired parenting expert, Di Wilcox. I'm pretty excited today because our special guest is the amazing Casey Berris. So it's a double whammy. I've got two wonder mums here with me today sharing their wisdom. Casey's the author of the hottest book in the country right now, I'd say. Might be biased, but uh, The Bad Girl's Guide to Better is really just fantastic, Casey. I've known this beautiful girl since she was uh, born, so I've watched firsthand a lot of your struggles, Casey. But and I've seen you rise from adversity to positivity, and to make it all work. You've turned into an incredible human being. You're a successful writer, TV presenter, health journalist, wife, and most importantly, your greatest role is as a mum to two little girls, Miller and Frankie. You're juggling all the balls and more. So, hi, Casey. Hi. And
1: dropping them frequently, I
0: should should add to that. (laughs) Firstly, uh, a huge congratulations on your book. All the accolades I read before I got to read it for myself are true. It's raw, it's funny, it's inspiring, and it's very real. Hallelujah to very real. Yes. Yes. And it's not just a book for your generation. I think it gives great insight into the psyches of young girls growing up for for all ages, for parents, for grandparents. It's something we all need to know and the wisdom that you impart is really, really important. Thank you.
1: That's so nice to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, you design something like that to, to achieve those things and then you mm. cross your fingers and push it out into the world and hope for the best. And so to hear that it's hit home like that is the best
0: feeling in the world. Well, you've had so many people saying exactly that, that it's hit home. Mm -hmm. So writing a book is very cathartic. But did you also write it as a legacy for your girls, as as much for yourself as for your girls? Definitely. I, I
1: said as I was writing it, if there are only two people in the world that read this and that's my daughter's, then that's my job done because... You know we lost my um, my mother-in-law 18 months ago to brain cancer very quickly oh. five weeks gone she was 68 but those things happen and oh. i'm terrified of leaving my girls here and not having left them with everything that i know and so it's such a privilege to have been able to pour into a bible like this essentially is how i designed it that heaven forbid should something ever happen to me that they have me this is everything i think this is everything i feel this is everything i know Uh, Bear in mind that I'm obviously a work in progress. And so there will be more to come. But for now, at 37, for them to have something that's like, that's what mum went through and that's how she felt. And those are the things that she struggled with. I think there's just so much... Camaraderie in, in brutal candor, and so that's oh. that's why I designed it like that. So I keep saying to people, I it's like the book that they most need to read, and I really also don't want them to read it.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, I yeah, know but you that know, they know they need what?
2: To. We learn our children learn from our experiences, even when they're they're acting like they're not listening to us and they're tuned out, and they'll say things like, "Are you talking about the olden days?" Mm-hmm. Um, really, they are listening to those stories. And I was having a conversation with my daughter about an experience I had, and trying to. To teach her a lesson in that experience, so she doesn't have to go through it herself. Yes, and our kids are going to have to go through their own journey. They're going to make their own mistakes. But how lovely that you've written this connection and legacy for your girls. It says, "Hey, this is what I went through. Mm-hmm. I hope you can learn from my mistakes, yes. but that you'll make some of your own." Yeah, I and,
1: and know that you're not alone in those. Yeah. And that's you know. Uh, it, my greatest hope is that younger women in particular read this and don't make some of the mistakes that I've made. But the the, the honest truth is that they probably they will. will. And I just want them to know that when they do, they're not alone and that there are so many other people in that boat and that they'll be okay on the other side of that.
2: Mm. Yeah, and you don't wear that as a label for the
0: rest of your life. That's yeah. right. You get past it. No, we've all been young, mm. and that sort of brings me to the next point. It's it's true that being a mum is so far removed from the single bombshell life, like <laughs> swinging from the chandeliers with the champagne, dancing on the tables, you're in a showgirl. It's always going to be there, and it's such a huge change for everybody. Whether they've been the ultimate party girl or just just a single, carefree girl, going into motherhood, it's all of a sudden you've got to grow up. And have that responsibility. Mm. I always say it's like staying up all night, but not
1: for fun. So I, I put exactly. in some good practice back in my day when I was I was just practicing for parenthood. But it is. It's a huge change. I mean. I waited. I was sort of 30 when I first fell pregnant, which um, I think is pretty normal these days. But obviously, even looking back at my parents' generation, um, that would have been considered quite old. And and I think they consider over 35 to be a geriatric pregnancy these days, which is where I was when I had my second baby. And so I, I feel like I really spent enough time enjoying my single life and I was really ready to settle down. That said, I definitely drank too many red wines last (laughs) night with my girlfriends (laughs) because I hadn't seen them for such a long time. And that's lovely to still be able to do that. But I mean, they're the great, those two little girls are the greatest thing that have ever happened to me. And so it it is a big change, but I don't think that I've never met a parent that said that it's not worth it. You're right. That's
0: beautiful. So clearly we could touch on so many topics with you, Casey, but we're going to try and narrow it down a bit and focus on self-worth, which is something you also discuss in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, You share very openly on Instagram, all the highs, all the lows. I've seen you do a poster in tears Mm -hmm. and you go, this is me tonight. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you come across as the successful, fulfilled, confident woman you are, who's inspiring others. But on the flip side, you still share your vulnerabilities, and you say openly that you struggle with anxiety. You've you've got the same fears and anxieties and worries as other mums, don't you? In, In spite yeah. of the fact that you're the, the health the stealth health guru, mm-hmm. you're helping all of us, but you're you're no different. Underneath all of that, you still share those same. Of course, I think that
1: that's the human existence, and I think my my the reason that I was put on the earth is to share some of those struggles and to be really honest about them, it really concerns me that in this day and age of this very filtered, curated life that we see, you know, part of the reason that I that I wrote this book and I'm doing this job is because I grew up learning about sex and and things that, that um, are sometimes more challenging for us to deal with, particularly as, as young women, from things like uh, Cosmo magazine and Dolly Doctor. And we don't have those. We don't have those anymore. They don't exist. What we have instead is this incredibly diverse, which is wonderful, range of people that we follow on social media, but it really concerns me that a lot of them aren't experts. So they're not the people that we should be leaning to for quality information and advice when it comes to how we sort of live our lives. And so and and I I am an expert health journalist that's what I do so my job for the last 15 years has been to pull the right information out of our brightest minds marry that with the research and the evidence and the data and then also kind of get the word on the street and blend all of that together and then present it to the public in a way that I think is helpful to them and so the self-worth piece I think is really vital that that is probably the biggest takeaway from the book is that we know more now than we have ever known the amount of information in those little phones in our hands and in our pockets would blow our grandmothers' and great-grandmothers' minds. And yet, I don't think we're any better off for it. I think if you look at research or any statistics around mental illness, around physical health, around uh, emotional health, about around loneliness, around our finances, we have these coaches' books training camps, mm-hmm. YouTube videos, there's so much information out there and I, I don't think that we are any better off for it. And I think that the research and the data reflects that. And so What that says to me is that there is a big gap between knowing and doing and what I have tried to do with this book is help try and start to bridge that gap or at least start to get people to question, well, why is it that if I know that I need to pull on my sneakers and go for a walk or not pour the third glass of wine or whatever it is, Why do I do it anyway? And that's because we know, but we don't necessarily do because we're not machines, we're human beings. We're driven by emotions. So we do what we feel like doing in that moment. And so after all of those years of interviewing those experts, that's really what it boiled down to for me. We know, but we don't do because I don't think our self-worth is robust enough. We don't feel Mm. like, oh... pulling on my sneakers, I'll do that because I'm worth it. We sit on the couch and watch Netflix instead, because that's what we feel like doing. And I don't know, Di, you probably, I'm sure you would know a lot more about this than me. But, you know, I don't know that we're all necessarily either born with or without a really robust sense of self-worth. I think that things happen to us throughout our life that tends to kind of knock it
2: Take Absolutely, down a and, and it's experiences um, that really, uh, over time, we, we get resilience from the experiences and the ability to problem solve and, and um, face life's challenges, but some children aren't getting that opportunity, and I think as a parent, you suddenly realise just how responsible you are for this little child and their happiness and their well wellbeing, um, and this can lead to a lot of worry and fear and anxiety in parents, so you've got all these anxious parents creating anxious children. Um, but couple this with parents not feeling good enough about themselves now. Now you've got to, you know, now we've got a real issue here. Where we've got parents who don't feel good about who they are and their self worth raising little people. I know. That and, worries me. You know, I think it's really important that we need parents to understand that for them to be the best parent, they need to value their own self worth. And secondly, they need to be prepared to help build and manage their child's self worth teaching them the strategies and, and you would have heard that I wrote a programme called The Magic Coat. Mm. And the reason I wrote that was because we need a really fun, simple um, language that children connect with to teach them some of these strategies. Mm. So one of the characters in in the Magic Coat is Amelia and Pandora and they're an oyster and a pearl. And we say to children, you know, oysters sit at the bottom of the ocean and all this yucky stuff's being washed into its mouth. Instead of closing itself off from the world, it secretes a substance called nacre, which forms a pearl. Now, a pearl is one of the strongest gems you can get. What we say to children is we can't secrete nacre, but we can use something really powerful that's the power of self-talk. And teaching little kids from five that you can retrain those thoughts that you're having in your brain to be more positive. Mm. which builds and enables them to manage those challenges that come their way but makes them feel better on a day-to-day basis. So instead of I'm so scared of going to that swimming lesson like my daughter was when she was five, it's now I am safe. I'm going to be okay. Mm. So as soon as we can start teaching from a really young age this, we're going to see resilience uh, grow in these kids but we have to start young. There's no point waiting till they're 14 when you know 14 everything starts to come
0: up. Yeah. So, Casey, you said that when you were growing up, you thought you were broken. Mm. Why did you think this and and what thoughts were you having at the time? I think I
1: thought that everyone around me knew exactly what they were doing and that I was the only one sort of flailing around like a bit of an idiot, really. And I think part of the problem, and, and honestly, it's probably the biggest driver of why I wrote the book, was because nobody talked about that then. It, everything was very, in a way, even though social media didn't exist when I was growing up, but but in a way, very curated on a personal level. It's like families curated this image of happiness and perfection. And you know, I come from a broken home. Uh, I had certainly had my fair share of of trials and tribulations as I was growing up, partially because of that, but just partially because of other things that happened in my life. And I wasn't resilient, to your point, Di, I wasn't resilient or robust enough to weather those storms. And I don't think that we knew enough then about how to support little people to be able to build that resilience. And so I just sort of withdrew. And when I was in primary school, I was really good at most things. I was a pretty talented little kid. I was very clever. I was really good at sport. I was always swim champ, athletics champ, ducks of my primary school. It it came quite easily to me, I think probably because mum and dad had poured quite a lot of time into me when I was little and I was naturally curious. And so when I got to high school, everything changed for me because all of a sudden I'd gone from being, you know, big fish, little pond into little fish, big pond. And all of a sudden there was all this competition and there were all of these other girls that were swim champ and athletics champ. And I wasn't as clever as I was. And I withdrew from everything because I didn't want to face that competition. And I have never been very good. In fact, I'm only just starting to cultivate this now in my late thirties. I've never been very good at going, oh, I'm not very good at that thing yet. So I'm going to try harder till I do get better at it. And it's okay to not be good at it right now, whether it's dancing or cooking or whatever it might be. Like, it's okay to be a beginner. I'll be a student for the rest of my life. Yeah. But I just didn't have that lens when I was growing up. I had these kind of blinkers on that I think I had sort of been conditioned um, or or had conditioned myself to feel like I had to overachieve at everything all the time. And 99% of kids don't experience don't experience that. Mm. And so I had to really, I've had to really cultivate in myself this better sense of self-worth as an adult, because I just didn't, did just didn't grow up like that. And I don't think it was anybody's fault. It was probably something that was bubbling away under the surface for me for a lot longer than anybody realised, certainly yeah. than I realised. So,
0: well, You're right, because there wasn't the awareness. Like now everybody's talking about mental health. We're That's all, right. We're all telling kids Express your feelings, do this and, and feel open about it and you're safe in expressing how you feel. So things have changed with every generation and as you said, we, we learn from our own childhood experiences. So what are you consciously doing differently as a parent as opposed to your own upbringing? Mm. And how are you going to guide your girls to take a different direction? I mean, you can only protect them so much. Yes. But what have you got to say on that?
1: Well... I I think the first thing would be that I'm really trying to instill in them that sense of like that's okay if you're not very good at that yet. That's why we practice and that's Aww. why we try and really actively talk them through that. Um, you know, my girls will have a completely different experience than I had because um, I'm my husband and I have been married for five years. He's my person. I hope that we'll be able to be together forever. Um, so they'll they'll just in terms of that family unit will have a different experience to what to what mine was but you know Di you mentioned in your intro that you've known me since I was born you're a really good friend of my mum's and Mm. one of the things that I know uh, was really challenging for me because for anybody listening um, and for context my mum owned a modelling agency was an incredible model and then owned a modelling agency that she started in the year that I was born and so I kind of fell into that world I was always like the token kid that they'd pull into a photo just because I happened to be on set if they needed a kid and then because I'm tall and um, relatively athletic I fell into that kind of modelling scene quite early because there was no barrier there to do that. And that definitely was something that, because that was mum's world, she will often still in her late 60s make comments about weight and appearance. And that was something that I found that now looking back really shaped my relationship with my body and and only feeling like I had self-worth when I was a particular size or a particular mm. shape. And so I tell her off all the time. She's not allowed to say anything about body or weight around my girls. We do um, something called beautiful body. And I say, you know, where's mummy's beautiful tummy? Where's mummy's beautiful legs? Where's Miller's beautiful legs? And we say here and here. And it's not just about, it's obviously about kind of learning our body parts, but it's also about you know, ju- and appreciating what you yeah. have. And everything's I,
0: beautiful. That's right. I love that.
1: And I talk to them about like how amazing that your legs carried you around today. Like, take the focus from now, from when they're Absolutely. really little. And I'd never, ever, and never mention anything about my weight or being feeling overweight or going on a diet or we're just like that's just flat and out not allowed.
2: That is so so important. I just worked with a seven-year-old um, who said she didn't like the bumps on her bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had you know in high school we were talking about um, I asked the, the girls if they knew what cellulite was and there was um, there were girls in tears thinking it was a horrible disease that you got um, and having to explain to them so they don't see it anymore because it's always photoshopped out so everything so the the real world is almost edited out yes. so what you're doing for your girls is brilliant because it's instilling that sense of self and loving and and um, you know, that self-acceptance from a young age.
0: I hope so. So, Di, it's about breaking the cycle sometimes, isn't it? Can you tell us about the advice you give to women in general, including those in prisons and refuges, because you work across a really wide spectrum of areas. So it's really all about the choices for everyone, isn't it?
2: It is. And you know, when I'm working with the women in in refuges and in prisons, they've had some um, pretty hellish life experiences and they often wonder if they can come back from those and if those experiences are going to define and label them. And what I think is really important for anyone to understand is that life is always full of choices. We're making choices all throughout the day. Um, And some of our bigger choices can impact our children. And this awareness is really important because we are constantly role-modelling to our kids. It doesn't matter what we say to them. They're watching us all the time. You 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 can say, don't do this, but look what mum's doing. Um, we need to teach our children there are, there are good choices and bad choices and that's the language I use with children. I'll say, is, are you making a good choice now or is that a bad choice? And what will happen if you go that down that path? What will the consequence be? Children need to understand that there's a consequence for both. And when they start to understand that, then they can consciously make decisions for themselves. And then they start to have some sort of sense that they have a little bit of control over this adult run world. Um, guiding our children to make these choices, it requires an awareness of the parent's part because you are still ultimately responsible to keep your child healthy and safe. Mm. So allowing them to eat whatever they want, or that, that's not a good parenting decision. And when we allow our children to make choices, we've got to give them strict parameters. So we can't um, say to the child, you can go anywhere you want today, just tell me. It's got to be, we can either go to the park or we can go to the beach because you'll be, you know, you'll be sitting there gobsmacked at some of the things <laughs> a child will decide um, mm. where they want to go. So talking through the consequences of each decision on a daily basis is giving them good skills for adult life.
1: Can I just say on the on the choices piece, I think that that's, I'm fascinated by, you know, women who end up in prison or, um, you know, in domestic violence shelters or um, who... And, and it's funny because the, the title of the book is was going to be The Bad Girl's Guide to Good. And the publisher said to me, look, we have this like, real problem with this bad-good dichotomy. And I was like, well, it's ironic. I'm not actually being prescriptive about oh. what is bad and what is good. I'm trying to play off this idea of the bad girl in society, whether that's that they drink too much or they sleep around or they whatever.
2: Mm.
1: However, I, I put the bad in inverted commas so that people would know that I was trying to be... I, ironic and then crossed the good out and wrote better because actually mm. I'm not trying to be prescriptive about what is good mm. I'm just trying to offer offer people ways in which to maybe break up with some of their, their worst behaviours if they're still kind of if they're still going through them and I think we go through them for our entire lives but I'm really fascinated by why did my life go from the way that it was which was me doing all of the wrong things and stuffing everything up and um, you know, run-ins with the the law and what have you. But but why did my why am I now married to the world's most beautiful man with two beautiful children and a successful career and I'm blissfully happy, and yet somebody else who was on that exact same path, their life went that way instead, and now they're the one in jail or they're the one who, you know, I've got a, a girl, one of my girlfriends from high school, drunk her way to liver failure at thirty-three. Mm. Like, why did that happen for her? And yet, my life went that way. I'm really fascinated by. It. And so, the choices piece, I think we. When it comes to those bigger choices, we've all been in a position, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that both of you can think of something that you can think back on and go like, wow, I'm so glad that that went that way and not that way, because that could have gone really badly. Whether it's that you drove your car after a few too many glasses of wine one day, or you jumped off a bridge with your friends into the water, and it could have you hear those horrific stories about things like that going really badly. And so I think we can all, when you get to a certain age, you can look back and go like, wow, I can see those moments that could have gone either way. But sliding doors. Yeah, and correct. Dodging
0: bullets. Sliding yeah, doors. Yeah, it, exactly. It is. And and when people are young, they they don't make good choices all the time. And no. even as they and and sometimes one bad choice just goes to another and another and then pulling themselves back from it. Is, that's really difficult.
1: I think so. And, and the self-worth piece and one of the biggest messages in the book to, to kind of close the loop on the self-worth question mm-hmm. is that we forget that these micro choices, so we understand about the big choices. Mm-hmm. Do I take that job? Do I move into that home? Do I marry that guy? Whatever it is. Those are big choices and we tend to kind of agonise over them and think about them a lot. But these micro choices every day, it's like building a muscle. It's, you have to get good at making good choices for yourself whether that's pulling on your sneakers and going for a walk, even though you didn't feel like it that day because you know that it's good for your mental health Mm. or whatever it might be, those incremental choices each day Is our opportunity to like back ourselves and to and to start to build that sense of self worth? Give
2: yourself the opportunity for your best life, and that's what we have to remember: is that um, we want people to be the best version of themselves. We're not asking each other uh, people to clone each other. Um, You somewhere along the line made a decision that. I'm going to do better for me yeah.
1: Yeah. and
2: when I'm working with women in the refuges and prisons it's really interesting I can tell pretty quickly the women who they will never be back in there again and then I can see the woman who's still sitting there with her core beliefs and self-worth I- issues where she she will come back because she's not ready to make the choice that she deserves mm. better and it's those micro choices you're talking about mm. that say hey I do deserve to go and give myself that walk outside mm-hmm. I do deserve to have a nutritious lunch yep. I do deserve to get some good sleep so it's though you're right it's those little decisions that go a long way that's yeah.
0: right and that's what you're talking about too Casey um, making peace with your past mm. and friends with your future
2: mm.
0: yeah
1: so, I think um I I realised <clears throat> very early on that I couldn't rewrite the past, I had to find a way to move forward and bring all of my old selves with me because I got to this point where it felt like I couldn't reconcile the things that I had done in the past and the person that I perhaps was back then it was like my modern day self was having to clean up my old self's mess, even if it was only in my head. And I, and I really grappled with that. I couldn't reconcile those two things. And so I just got to the point where I was like, you know what? That was then. This is now. What's done is done. Mm-hmm. I can't run away from that person. I did do crappy things. I slept with the wrong people. I did the wrong things frequently by myself, first and foremost, and by other people. But So I can spend the rest of my life beating myself up for that, or I can
2: sit here and go like, ugh. Oh, so was there an element ideal. of... I need to forgive myself. To let that past go, you need to forgive yourself. And you go, yeah, you know what? I didn't make such good choices,
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. but
2: that's not who I'm going to be in my future. And I think thinking about future and planning for it gives everyone hope, and we're nothing without hope. Um, And we, as I said, we have to teach our children the same thing we can't fix what's happened yesterday Mm. there's no point thinking about tomorrow you can have a plan for it but you really don't know what's going to come in the way of that plan so all you've got is today that's right and as a parent you're saying how much you you want to be there for your children there's no point planning too far ahead because you just don't know what's around the corner so you just have to be in the present and be there now
0: Mm. yeah so just coming back to a point we touched on earlier casey um I've spoken with you, Di, about how crucial year nine is for girls. And Casey, you've spoken about how at age 14, you became really conscious of your appearance. Mm. And can you share a bit more? Oh, you've already touched on it, mm. but you, you said you were conscious of your appearance. You over-exercised. You weren't eating properly. yes.
1: Yeah, I, it's it's nice to hear you say that that, that mm. you have spoken previously about Year 9 because I mm. think Year 9 was definitely the year that it's things fell apart for me. It's where I the most calls
2: from schools. Year 9, teachers yes. get on the phone. We've got a group of Year 9s. Please come in and help us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and look, I think
1: part of the challenge for me, obviously, was that I had stepped into that world of modelling that requires mm. a different set of aesthetic sensibilities. Um, so there was that, and, and I suppose with mum being in the role of being kind of my agent and my mum she has always had a very strong I think sense of self and a really good relationship with both her body and understanding that if you want to be a doctor you have to study medicine if you want to be an engineer you have to study engineering if you want to be a model then you essentially had I say past tense because things are very different now with all of the plus size models and this incredible wonderful diversity that we see now but in my Day, she says, shaking her cane. <laughs> Back in my day, um, you had to be a certain size, which was, and I think I, I was usually like a size 8 or a it, size 10. It was
0: size 8, and I could yeah. never get, I, I was also in that world, as you know, but yeah. it, for me, size 8 was like Nirvana. I, I cracked size 10, and occasionally, I mean, I remember at 53 kilos thinking I was really fat Oh, wow. yeah. still oh, and wow. so it's same thing like we were just brought up in that world and you wanted the gap between your legs like it was really really unhealthy it, it was I mean I, I lived on in most of my late teens black coffee and cigarettes wow. I don't think I ate a decent meal every three days you know yeah. I, I just didn't because for me with my body shape I had to uh, to achieve that I literally had to starve myself, like a lot of girls. We're not all naturally thin. No, and I was
1: naturally slim, but I was not. I was still athletic, and so Mm. I was a bigger build. Now I would be fine. Though I would probably work much better than I did back then, but then I was from 15, or even younger, I would say from... 13 I was probably okay. Probably from 14 was when they were like, yeah, you just need to start kind of watching your weight, if not just to make sure that you kind of don't mm-hmm. put any on any more for, than from here. And I really I really struggled with that. I mean I think I got down to about fifty three kilos was my lowest, which is about twenty kilos lighter than I am now okay. and I was about the same height. And as you're I am.
0: tall, let's say you're a lot taller than I'm me. Almost so six six feet and then tall. you you to be fifty three kilos. Was tiny, yeah.
1: Tiny, tiny, tiny. And I also think it's about control. You know, so many eating disorders are not actually about vanity or about about the way that you look. Mm. It was about me trying to control something. And I had issues going on at home and I was struggling at school and food was this really tangible lever that I had to be able to have control over something when everything else felt out of control. Mm. And so I think to answer your question, 14 was definitely the challenge for me. And those body image issues were definitely one of those sliding doors moments that we were talking about that, you know, I wasn't hospitalised. There were plenty of girls in my school who were. And we know that eating disorders, they really grip you. And they're very, very challenging to treat. Um, And I, a few years ago, I went to the Karolinska Institute in Sweden and interviewed a, a doctor by um, by the name of Dr. Per Soderston, I think his name was, and he runs the eating disorders clinic over there. And I was so fascinated. So I went on the ward with all of the women. They were all women. There were no men, which I know statistically is not right. But in, in, that, mo- in that moment, that's what they had there. And on the same ward, and they were having incredible success in treating these eating disorders, much better success than Australia has had. Oh. We know that they're notoriously difficult to treat. And he showed me that, so on the same ward, he had the girls who were incredibly underweight and incredibly overweight walking around mingling with one another. And I I would never have thought that that would have been Mm. the case. And what he said to me was, all it is is that you've lost your capacity to understand how food satiates you. So really being able to kind of I suppose, tune into those cues again. And he would use this machine called a mandometer that kind of looks like just a little scale with like a reading on it. And he would put grapes on top of it. And he showed showed this to me with a girl that was incredibly underweight and a girl that was incredibly overweight. And they both had the same amount of grapes. And he showed me that they what the machine is teaching them to do is to eat at the right pace. So the overeater would mm. tend to guzzle, guzzle, mm, guzzle, yeah. guzzle, 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 mm-hmm. and then be too full, mm. but the, she hadn't given her brain time to catch up, and then the girl who was underweight would feel so full after having one or two grapes. And what was really fascinating to me about that was that actually it's all the same thing, and we understand that now about eating disorders is it's not actually about undereating and overeating, they're all just on a spectrum of the same thing, which is that your relationship with food has become broken at some point along the way. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, that comes back to that self-worth piece. Like, it is this time. If you've got an addiction to crack, you go cold turkey off crack. But if you've got an addiction to food... You can't you go might. off food. No, you, know. food. You, you have need to have it
2: in your life. But it's interesting listening to both of you because you, you were talking about dissatisfaction that you had as, as teenagers because there was still this pressure. And the research that's currently being done right now is that um, teenagers are more dissatisfied and more anxious than ever before. So to me, that's quite frightening. So listening to your stories and then realising it's, it's mm. 10 times worse for these kids. And it's no longer just the models in magazines being airbrushed, but... Their, their friends are being airbrushed on Instagram, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so and they're um, airbrushing themselves they're airbrushing and then comparing themselves. what they yes. look and like in the right. mirror and to the pictures mirror. of themselves. So they're that never have feeling, been they're never feeling like my they're good friends enough. are doing it. Yeah. Everybody started yeah. doing
0: it, you know? I like, know.
2: Yeah, it's it's frightening, and there's this pressure of representing a version of yourself that may not even be real. So there's these young girls trying to pretend to be someone they're not, and that gets exhausting. And I often say to the girls when I'm working in high school, how exhausting is it to try and be someone you know you actually aren't? Um, Mm. And and when they keep doing that, that anxiety builds and builds, and then we get self-harm, and then we get these depressed thoughts of suicide because they no longer think they, they believe they're worthless. So again, as adults role modelling to our children, we need to be having conversations about what messages our social media is sending out so, um. I often will say to my girls, hey, check this out. This only took 100 shots to get the perfect photo. Yeah. You know, like yeah. having, teaching them that we don't wake up and life's perfect. It doesn't work that way. And, and I think I love that on your social media, Casey. It's, it's the real, the, the real you coming through. And I think it's really important we start teaching girls of such a young age. Um, yeah. To, it's okay to be real.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. right. And then you also get die you've spoken to about it's not only the pressure from the social media, but there's that parental pressure being placed on kids too and across all different aspects of life. Oh, absolutely.
2: So a lot of parents base their child's self-worth on their academic or their sporting success. Mm. Um, And have you ever heard of lawnmower parents before? No. So you've heard of helicopter parents? Yes. So lawnmower... Yeah, this is a goodie. So lawnmower parents are the parents who they make a decision of what their child's going to be. So my child's going to be an international basketball player, just as an example. Right. They will, for the rest of that child's life as a child, they will look at what obstacles are coming in the way of their child becoming that international basketball star, and they will get rid of all obstacles. Wow. So their child Mm. never faces any of the challenges or having to overcome any problems themselves. Mm. Then they wonder why these kids grow up to be very anxious and depressed adults, because they've never had to deal with the reality of achieving. And achieve, yeah. you know, we say to our kids all the time, you can be anything you want, but we keep forgetting it takes hard work. Sometimes you're going to fail. Sometimes you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have to persevere. There's a big chunk of a message that we're missing when we tell our mm. children they can be anything they want to be.
0: Um, and you're yeah, not always going to be uh, able to be everything you want to be. That's a great point. Mm. You're not. And we do, we do tend to say, yep, yeah, you can have it. You can do what you want, whatever. Nothing will stop you from being. And and it's also about having the visual, visualization, but it can't. It's not always achievable. And one right. of the things
1: that I say in the book about that is like just widen the lens a little bit. Mm, yeah. So let's say that you, I had an ex-boyfriend who who was desperate to be a pro surfer, and he probably was a little bit old and probably not quite good enough, with all due respect to him. Um, but I used to say to him, but but. Perhaps you could be like a manager of elite surfers mm-hmm. or you could work on the marketing team of a surf brand or mm-hmm. you could run surf retreats and be a surf, surf trainer. You still get to spend the whole day in the water doing your thing and that's the bit it's that so you true. love. That's Just right. bro- like broaden it out a little bit because our dreams almost never look the way that we thought no, that they were
0: going it's to. like we're not all going to win Lotto, are we? <laughs> uh, you we really sad when I oh, no, that. Because <laughs> I've been hoping. Um, Casey, just bringing us back to our self-worth, self-worth again, mm. um, you talk about the four areas that you need to work on mm. as an adult, physical, emotional, financial and spiritual. Yes. Can you give us a little thread on those? Yeah.
1: So after, when I, after I had been interviewing experts for over a decade, I was like, what is going on here? Because I could see that the data and the statistics weren't stacking up in terms of that that information and these incredible experts who know everything about their thing, delivering that information to the public didn't actually seem to be having a result or or improving things, perhaps in the way that we would have liked it to. And so I started to look at what some of the common themes were in what they were telling me and also what I was seeing reflected out of the public in terms of what our needs were. And once I cottoned on to the fact that it was the gap between knowing and doing, I I believe, is the self-worth piece, believing that you are worth making a better decision in that moment about that thing. I started to look at at what areas I felt I could kind of cordon them off into so that I could I would be able to kind of share that wisdom, I suppose, with other people. And so physical self-worth is not just about, do I look hot today in the mirror? Physical self-worth mm. is, how do I feel when I look in the mirror? Do I feel good about myself when I'm walking down the street? Do I love my body enough to choose to eat the nutritious thing or to not drink the 10 beers on the weekend or to pull on my sneakers and go for a run. So that really is the physical piece for me because I think we get told over and over and over again, you need, you know, 30 minutes of moderate exercise, five days a week. Um, those are the exercise guidelines. You need to make sure you drink water. You need five veg, two fruit. We we know, we know, we know. all of that mm. stuff. And so that for me is the real kicker. Do I love myself enough to do the right thing by my body? Maybe not all the time. I'm like have the cake and eat it twice mm.
2: occasionally because that's, mm. that's- I'm glad you said that because I love my chocolate that's that's joy right that's what life
1: is about I'm not Mm -hmm. saying don't do those things but you have to love yourself enough to be able to choose the majority of the time to do what your body what your body
0: needs as I'm listening to you it's like you almost have to parent yourself one hundred percent. We
2: have to pair, we have to
0: continue parenting, not just which our kids which feeds back into the role
2: modelling to our kids, yeah. right? Yeah, because exactly. Teaching our kids those physical. You can, there's no point telling our children to go out and exercise when they're seeing us sit on the couch um, eating our packet of chips. That's know? right. So there's the physical. Then there's emotional. Emotional. Yeah. So mm-hmm.
1: emotional. I think emotional self worth is about understanding. And if you've ever seen the, the movie in kids' movie Inside Out, one of my favorites. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Fantastic. If you have if you're listening and you haven't seen it do us a favour after this (laughs) go and watch it straight away because it's this it's a kids movie but it's got so much value for adults in understanding that we are designed with this incredible almost pharmacy of emotions inside of us and we need all of them and and what we tend to do is when we experience the so-called negative emotions like anger and frustration and sadness we run away from them as fast as we can and we try and like plug the gap and make ourselves feel better with a glass of wine or the chocolate or the Netflix or whatever Um, or possibly sex, drugs, alcohol, those sorts of of coping mechanisms when we are feeling things that we don't like. And so really, I think emotional self-worth is about recognizing that all of those emotions are designed to coexist within us. I always say it's like a DJ can't just play one song for his whole set. You need a mix of some slow jams and some bangers. It's like it has to be a bit of a journey. And so loving yourself enough to recognize that all of those emotions are welcome and allowed And that you're allowed to feel them and that you're allowed to express them. And I think that emotional granularity piece, so naming our emotions rather than just like, I feel crap going like, okay, I do feel crap. Why do I feel crap? What is that? Is that anxiety about a looming deadline? Is that disappointment because a family member's let us down? Is it sadness because we're missing that person? Or that? like, what is that feeling? Because once you can identify it, then you can do something about it.
0: Yeah, just to cut in there, I noticed that with my grandchildren at school, they are really teaching children now to To articulate their feelings. There is so much focus on that, which is great. Like they, they really are. They sit them down and they go, and they've got blue, the colour. They've coloured code them and it's really wonderful. So there is that awareness now through the schools or through whatever that kids are getting that awareness from such a young age. Yeah. And they can articulate it. Like remember you were saying you couldn't always you didn't know why you were feeling this and people weren't talking about it. But now it's it's okay to talk about your feelings. And so we we have to encourage that with our kids at home Mm, as well. So we've got Obi the octopus
2: in the magic coat and he's got all these, holds up all these different feelings because sometimes you can feel mm. more than one feeling at a time mm. and children need to identify and be able to label that emotion so that they are then able to express it in a way that doesn't hurt themselves or another person. Yes. So the earlier we can teach that. I mean, if, if only we'd been taught some of this stuff when we were younger, mm. I think we would have a, a generation, it'd be a lot easier for us to have that emotional
1: Yes, um, I
2: think so. Connection.
1: And then the third one um, is well, the one that I well, I'll, I'll let me do spiritual because I think we've we've lent in really nicely off the emotional piece. And when I talk mm. about spiritual self worth, it, it could be religion and it could be spirituality, but it could also be connection to your community or connection to your sexuality or something that is bigger than us. So turning outward rather than turning inward. Mm. And I think that that's really vital, knowing that, yes, I'm a tiny little speck in the Mm. universe, but I still have something to offer, but that the greatest dividends will be paid to us when we project that outward rather than inward. I think Mm. we've become so insular that I actually think that we need to kind of turn the focus off of ourselves a little bit. So that's what spiritual self-worth is about to me. Uh, And then financial, this is like, there could be nothing more important than understanding the role that money plays in our happiness and in our stress so we know that financial stress is the number one reason that people feel stressed and anxious about about their lives when it comes to kind of running the businesses that are our our day-to-day lives and anybody who's listening to this doesn't matter whether you're considered wealthy or whether you're not Everybody has money stress of some kind. And I think that acknowledging that is is really important. But then financial self-worth to me is about, am I being paid what I'm worth? Genuinely what I'm worth? Um, And where am I willing to negotiate? Because I can see that if we use your employment as an example,
2: Mm.
1: I've definitely done jobs where I haven't been paid what I was worth However, I was gaining these incredible skills or access to opportunities or meeting wonderful people. It's not always just about money. It's about freedom sure. and flexibility and building There, There are other, I guess, like levers there that you have to consider. So it's not just about money. But I think if you can't stand up and say, thanks so much for offering me that job, um, I'd, I'd actually really love to take it because I can really see the benefits that it would deliver me however that salary is, is not in line with what I need to be able to live mm. and in terms of my expectations in regards to my skill set.
2: So true, Right there Casey nailed it. I think it's really it's important. True. It really yeah. is. Yeah. To be and able women to say that. Women in particular are people pleasers so mm. they quite often take on things that they don't really want to or they don't feel they're truly being appreciated and valued for mm. but they do it anyway mm-hmm. and And I think what you're touching on is really important. Yeah. And I really
1: want people and and that it might not be that it might. Let's say that you're a stay at home mum. And so the income in your family comes from your partner. It's also about saying, hey, while you're working and I'm raising kids, I'd like it if you split your super with me because I don't want to sit here and not earn super whilst and and I've stepped out of the workforce. Or, no, it's not okay with me that you control the finances. I want 50-50 control or separate bank accounts or whatever, like, works in your family. So it's not just in the employment space. I think it's about no matter what your role is, how you save and spend your money. Do you blow your rent money on shots because it was fun or do you save your money to get into your home? Do you... Live in a suburb of what Scott Pape, the Barefoot Investor, calls postcode povos because you need to live <laughs> in this incredible suburb, but really all of your credit cards are maxed and you're leasing a Mercedes, mm-hmm. and or are you like, nope, I'm going to live in this suburb because that's a smarter option, and eventually I'll get to where it m-. doesn't matter what your goals are, but it's about loving yourself enough to be able to guide yourself financially and make good choices when it comes to your money.
0: Mm-hmm. So. When it comes to self-worth, you talk about the importance of being your own best friend. And Di, that's something you say Mm. we need to teach children as well. Oh, it's so important that children can be their own best friend. And and
2: that's where that power of self-talk comes in, you know. But one thing um, I talk a lot to children about is sometimes you're going to find yourself alone in life. And as parents, we freak out when we hear that our child is on their own. And so then the child gets anxious and goes, oh, my goodness, I'm on my own. And when I talk to children, they'll say, people think I'm a loser if I'm by myself. I think we need to change the script there. Being on your own sometimes is a really important part of growing and becoming the best version of you because it's a time to reflect um, and and do the things you love to do, be the person you want to be without the pressures from other people. So for children, I encourage them, we we actually get them to make an on my own box. So we get them to recycle an old shoe box and put in some pencils and some paper or their favourite book or whatever it might be. And if they don't have anyone to play with at recess or lunch... They've got something to take and sit under a tree and do for them. And I think that's an important change. You know, let's start changing that. the, the need to always be with someone be your own best friend first mm. Mm. Uh, it's really interesting a couple of years ago uh, I think it
1: was Swinburne yeah. University released the Australian loneliness mm. report and that the loneliness statistics were staggering I won't quote them for you here because I'm certain that I'll get them wrong but one of the things that I found really fascinating about that research was that you can be surrounded by people and feel incredibly lonely so it's mm. being alone and being lonely are two, two different very things. very different things so I love that that yeah. Such a awesome. great idea, but I think we also forget as adults. Like, I want an, a alone box or on my own yeah, box. Yeah. I want one of those. It would have a Who magazine and a block of Cadbury chocolate. Like, we
2: should have those. Oh, things. I love the chocolate bits. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it's it's so true. It's um, it's it's we've got to stop fearing time on our own.
0: You know that that's important. Yeah. So Casey, back to the book. Mm. Um, it's really punctuated with lots of self-deprecating humour. You're really, really good at that. <laughs> it's really funny and witty and very clever in the way you've balanced the funny stuff with mm. the darker stuff. So it's that's not easy to do. That's a really clever skill you have there. Thank you. So did you start out with a plan to write it that way, or did it just you did? Yeah, yep. I did. Yep. And that was my
1: challenge was to myself was can I deliver something that if we keep delivering the same information in the same ways over and over and over Mm -hmm. and over again we're not going to get it it's like the the um, definition of madness right expecting a different result from doing the same thing over and over again and so I thought well I so my background is I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a dietitian. I'm an expert health journalist, but mm. I'm. I, it is not my job to deliver health and well-being advice to the public of my own opinion. That's my job as a journalist is actually to keep my opinion out of it and just deliver the Extract, facts. Yeah. Correct. So could I blend my story for context and humour and light? with the evidence and the research and the data and the expert opinion from the very best people that I think we have some of the very best people that we have in the country and back that all up by what all of the women that I surveyed for the book had to say but then also what the kind of word that I hear on the street from the people that I would speak to could I blend all of those things together and deliver something that didn't feel like a like it was totally all over the place but still felt really kind of led through and so yes it was my plan from the beginning but I didn't know whether it was going to work it and did work. I hope so yeah. and you know I say come for the wisdom and stay for the lols or the other way around I don't care but just, just you'll get it. both and yeah. that's the definition of the stealth help genre it's mm. not self help it's not straight as straight down the line you need this I can teach you this that's what self help is right you're looking for those mm. kind of lessons you, absolutely get the lessons here, but I want it to feel like lunch with your girlfriends, cross with a bit of a therapy okay. session. It should be fun. I want yeah. it to entertain you. That's why the stories are in there. And yes, wow. I share some of my not so fine moments, but there's always a point. I, I'm not sharing them just for giggles. I'm sharing them yeah. because it leads Contents. me into that lesson. Yeah. And so really the way that I structured it was I sat down and thought like, if I could go back to being 20, what Other life lessons I have since learned that I desperately needed to know then. Mm. How would my life have been infinitely better had I known? these things and I sat down and wrote them all out. For example, one of my favourite lessons is lesson three and it's no one knows WTF they're doing. That I really needed to know. I didn't know that. I thought that everybody else had it together. And so that that chapter is really about learning to kind of coexist with worry and uncertainty mm. because they're the same for all of us and giving you really practical strategies to be able to do that and be able to sit in the uncertainty and the discomfort that that brings. I really mm.
2: like that because you you're not just to, you're not saying life is butterflies and rainbows Mm-mm. and that's important for our children to know too mm. because everyone has problems at some point um uh, in the magic coat we have a character solomon the surfboard and he's all about riding life's waves and mm. saying to kids you know sometimes you're going to have a problem you can't run away you can't hide from them but you can learn to problem solve or you can learn how to feel better about a situation that's happening because we don't have control over anything it you know everything and and everyone but we can feel better about things by reacting or dealing with them in a different way and
0: teaching children this from a young age yeah. so I love that case Thanks so much for coming to you today. I know you've got a super busy schedule, but you got locked down for the first few days. I you're did. <laughs> and you've shared some real gold with us today. So I hope everyone's really enjoyed what you've had to say. And Di, thank you as always. You're oh, wonderful. it's been a
2: pleasure speaking with Casey and yeah. you, Di. She's, thank you so much. She's, alive. she's a you're both. I feel like I'm
0: sitting in the room with two really bright lights I think there's three bright lights but listen if you haven't already got a copy of Casey's book the guide bad girls guide to good (laughs) slash better please get one as soon as you can it is a girls bible and it is going to stand the test of time Casey like it's just it's. I'm giving it to my two girls and um So thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, beautiful girls, for being here. And enjoy the rest of your stay in Perth. Thank You're out you tomorrow. for having me. Yeah.
2: Thank you. Bye, everyone.